Hello and welcome to the Art of Communication podcast with me, Robin Kermode. For more information on my online public speaking masterclass, visit robinkermode.com. I'm really pleased to have with me today the very Reverend Peter Elliott. He's just retired as Rector of Christchurch Cathedral in Vancouver and was formerly Dean of Westminster in the Anglican Church of Canada. He grew up in Ontario where he studied English literature and he is, I know from personal experience, a very genuine and very powerful speaker. Peter, I've seen you in action. You seem, from the congregation's point of view, incredibly assured, incredibly confident. Can you talk a little bit about confidence and whether you actually feel as confident as you appear? (laughs) What a good question. I grew up in a home where performing was kind of part of our the culture of growing up. We were a musical family, lots of time around the piano, and I was a boy soprano and had to perform publicly, competitions, all that sort of stuff. The place I grew up in, St. Catharines, Ontario, is an industrial town, General Motors, mm-hmm. hockey, mm-hmm. sort of a jock culture. And I won at a music festival somewhere, and I was in grade one or two, and I was invited by the principal to sing at an assembly. That must be nerve-wracking oh, when you were young, isn't well, it? yeah, and I was a slight kid, but all the training I'd had to kind of muster up my courage as a seven-year-old, whatever I was, and stand and sing my piece. And then went out for recess and schoolyard and thought, here it comes. And the kids, even the bullies, came up and said, you had such courage. Wow. Yeah. And I realized, I mean, in that moment, that I just needed to be who I am mm. and do what I need to do. And folks will kind of sort themselves out in relationship to that. So the confidence came from that kind of experience and from, you know, being fortunate enough to grow up in a very loving and supportive family and being encouraged to put myself out there and speak. I think that's great when you come from a family where people say, have a go, have Have a go, as opposed to, you'll never do that. You know, your sibling is the singer, you're not. Yes. And I very much have that. I have three musicians in the family. And I think to myself, I can't sing. Everyone else says to me, well, you sing in church and you're fine. I've heard you sing. You're absolutely fine. I've sung on stage in the West End. Yes. But I still think my perception of myself is I can't sing because I was told I couldn't. Yeah. I have a close friend and the script in his mind from his mother is, what makes you think you can do that? Oh, and I don't have that script at all. I have, go for it. Be courageous uh, to do it. And then, you know, at the cathedral for 25 years, it became, you know, as Henry Higgins sings in My Fair Lady, second nature to me now. Like breathing out and breathing in. You had this support from your parents. Do you think you sound like your father? Did you sing like your father? Hmm. I think I, as a kid, I sang better than my father. Now I sing embarrassingly much like my father. (laughs) Uh, I hear myself now and I think, oh my goodness me, I I sound like my father. I know. And I sing like my father. It's amazing, eh? It is. And actually, I quite like it. Yeah. Because my father's passed away now and sometimes I hear myself and it almost reminds me of him. Yeah. And the whole genetic thing, you know, we just carry so many of these Mm -hmm. genes from our parents. Most of this is unconscious. Yeah. But every now and then, yeah, we sort of grow into it. Well, it's lovely when that happens, isn't it? Mm. Now, you and I both are aware that voice is important. I remember talking to British Airways chairman, Willie Walsh, at a party once, and and I was talking to him about the sound of airline pilots and how important it is for (laughs) an airline pilot to have a reassuring voice. Because, of course, there's no need for the airline pilot to actually talk to the passengers. They have to talk to air traffic control. But the reason they talk to passengers, of course, is just to 
create a sense of calm. There is a mm. human being here who's done it before, relax. Even if there's a bit of turbulence, you know, we kind of want the airline pilot to go, relax, you know, slight bit of turbulence, yes. sit back, have a gin and tonic, you'll be fine, that kind of thing. And we can panic, but they're not. Now, how important would you think voice is to a priest? Oh, I think it's really important. Over 25 years at the cathedral, I had a number of other clergy come and go, assisting in the ministry of the place. And I could tell almost from the first time that I experienced their presence in worship in public, whether or not people were going to feel comfortable with them. And it's a timbre, right? It's mm. a tone. I think in public speaking, it's a slowing down because it takes a while, I think, for folks to absorb what you're saying. And especially, I was speaking in a, a larger than average room. Mm-hmm. So there's a bit of an echo. A bit of an echo yeah. and keeping it slow enough and keeping the tone of the voice kind mm-hmm. so that folks feel comfortable. Yeah. And you can. Uh, it's hard to say what works. I sure know when it doesn't work, when someone is clearly so nervous or the nerves have gotten or the range of the voice gets higher. Mm. And I could almost feel the congregation shifting in their seats. Whereas, you know, and part of it was they got comfortable with me over a quarter of a century, but I could also experience when I started, almost the anxiety in the room yes. go down. Okay, yes. things are okay now, right? Yeah, kind of like yeah, the yeah. airline pilot. It is a tone, and I think even before the tone comes the intention. Yes. And so if your intention is to create a sense of calm, then you will create a sense of calm just yes. because consciously that's what you're trying to do. To project, yeah. As a priest, I would imagine there's a sense of having to be a bit like your namesake, Peter the Rock. When people are in crisis, they turn to religion, they turn to somebody who can sort out what might seem a mess. So yeah. how do you, as a priest, hold that space mm. Mm, yeah. And, you know, I was talking to a friend yesterday who's just begun in her ministry and said, you know, I think it was really after my first 10 funerals that people really began to trust me at the church. It became somewhat formulaic and sometimes patterns are our best friends yeah. when we speak to the public. But being the first person in the room just while we're on funerals to say something. Mm-hmm. And what I began to do was start with what everybody already knew. It's a Tuesday afternoon, beautiful, sunny November. Here we are in Vancouver, and we're here because. That wasn't really planned. It sort of began, and then I realized that this was really helpful. It's also Uh, conversational, isn't it? It's conversational. And it also says, okay, yeah, we all know it's November. (laughs) We all know it's beautiful out there, or it's bucketing down rain as it does in Vancouver. And we all know we're here, and we're here because so-and-so has died. And it puts some very simple things together. And you could almost, again, feel the kind of relaxation. Okay, we know where we are. Rather like that great book, How to Win Friends and Influence People. Mm, Dale Carnegie. He has a section in that, which is, you get people to say yes three times before you give them a message. You're kind yes. of doing the same thing, which exactly. is, it's a Tuesday and everyone's going, yeah, it doesn't require a nod or anything, but right. they go, yeah. And you say, and it's November, and they go, yes, and it's a lovely day, yes. So the cortisol that's released when you say yes, relaxes people. Yes, just like if I say to you, and I have a theory about this, and I'm gonna tell you the theory, that gets a certain part of the brain going, but if I say, let me tell you a story, I was a six-year-old boy soprano, and I was having to sing in front of a school of bullies. Now we're talking. 
But also, you're not saying, I'm brilliant. Because you could have said, let me tell you how when I was seven, I won the competition. And yeah. I was really good. And I was really <laughs> confident. Now, that kind of alienates the audience because most people don't feel that. Exactly. You know? Yeah, and it's so true. So you're sitting there with your blank sheet of paper. Where do you start? Right. And I think this is a Dale Carnegie thing. And it's something my dad taught me. He did a lot of public speaking in his work. He was a corporate executive. And Dale Carnegie had four steps in a speech, and they are easily remembered. Ho-hum, why bring that up? For instance, and so what? So the ho-hum is something to get an attention. I was standing in front of a high school filled with bullies, let's say. Oh, that's got my attention. Why bring that up? Because we're going to talk about confidence. For instance, and then so what? So it's the ho-hum. I often in writing sermons particularly, but also other kinds of presentations, would have the body of it written and keep going, uh, but where can I start? And then when I come up with the opening sentence, it all flows. It's like a light bulb moment, isn't it? Yeah. And I remember when I spoke at my father's funeral, I sat down and I thought, what is it I'm actually saying? Mm-hmm. You know. And in the end, it was one minute long. And my sister said to me, but you can't say everything you want to say about your father in one minute. I said, you can, but it's much harder than 15. Exactly. Much, much harder. And funnily enough, when you strip away and strip away and strip away and you just say it, actually, the saying of it becomes easier, but also I think it lands more. Oh, yeah. I've probably been to more funerals than than most human beings. And people often say, now we need 15 people to speak at Mr. Smith's funeral. And after about person two, it was the same thing. Because you begin to see their life and their character and their qualities, as it were, all at once. Mm. Now we have the bookends, the alpha and the omega, you know. We have the beginning and the end. And out of all this has shone, what? Kindness, compassion, care, perseverance, whatever. Mm. And that quality comes through. And you can say it in a minute. I remember working with a client and just at the end of a session, he said, Robin, could we spend a couple of minutes on the eulogy I have to give for a friend of mine next week. And I said, of course, just tell me about your friend. And he thought for a moment and he said, well, I think David is probably the kindest man I've ever met in my life. And I said, well, you've just written your speech. That's it. So you stand up and you say, David is probably the kindest man I've ever met in my life. Let me tell you why. And you give two stories and you say, so when we all leave here today, let's think of a very kind man. Exactly. Exactly. So we talked about beginnings. What about endings? To make sure people remember the message at the end, how, how do you think about that? Yeah, I always want to cycle back to the whole hum at the beginning, mm. right? Because the brain loves structure. Well, I suppose it's a bit like in the military where they say, I'm going to tell you what I'm going to tell you. And they tell you, tell and you. then they say, no, I'll tell you what I've told you. It's yeah. kind of the same thing. It's the recapitulation, yeah. often a shorter way than the beginning. And as you said to your friend, something for people to take home with them. And what's fascinating, I was teaching a course on preaching in a church in San Francisco a few years ago, and I said, I don't know how many of you have had this, but people have come back to me years later after hearing me speak and said, you know, I heard you speak that time, and you said this one thing that I will never forget, and they tell you what the one thing is. But here's the weird part. In my mind, I'm going, I don't think I said that. And I've gone back and looked at the address, and it's not there. And I said, has anyone else had that experience? Every hand in the room went up. Yes. When people are listening to a speech, their brain makes their own connections. And it will connect something that I have said, will connect here, 
and that will do a whole kind of chain reaction that will lead them to an insight. It's now their insight. It's their insight. Yes. That's it. And that's really what you want to have happen. Yeah. They think in their brains, in their memories, it was the thing that I said. Yes. And indeed, it was probably the thing that I said that triggered the chain reaction that got them to their insight. It's rather like when we're watching a movie and we feel manipulated by the filmmaker where the violins come in and you think, you're trying to make me cry now and it's kind of annoying. <laughs> what we want to do is to find ourselves crying and think we chose to cry. Exactly, exactly. So you've written your sermon, you have it all there. You've got your nice ho-hum moment, you've got all that. <laughs> when you get up there, how do you deal with your notes? There's two kinds of preachers, kinds who use notes and kinds who don't use notes. The wanderers are the stationary, and I'm a stationary. Which doesn't mean, of course, they haven't prepared. No. It's a, it's a, it's a different... It's it, a different thing. Yeah. And I live in great admiration of the people who can stand up and just let it flow. Occasionally I have done that, but I'm always worried about saying exactly the wrong thing. Yes. Usually I know the notes well enough to know where I am, and the notes are a bit of a guide. Although from time to time there is a particular sentence or thing that I want to be very specific about saying. So from a very practical point of view, first, uh, I use a big font and double-spaced. That's number one about notes, because I want to be able to glance and see I always suggest at least 14 point, maybe larger, double-sided if you can, because then you're not turning pages too yeah. often. You can see at mm -hmm. a glance. And number three is to sometimes take a pause to be sure that I am where I am and not lose connection with the audience. So that may mean finishing a thought and taking a breath. Allowing them to process it. Allowing them. Yeah. And what might seem like an hour is probably under 15 seconds. And folks actually appreciate it. And then you can pause and focus and look again and then look up. And come back with new energy. And come back with new energy. Yeah. One thing I recommend is use of color as well. Because if you have a couple of sections in blue or red... Yeah. Your eye will know if you're just above or just below or yes, whatever. That's a and good so I think idea. they're almost like anchors on the page. Mm -hmm. And anything that makes you feel safe and gives you an anchor yeah. has got to help keep you on track and help you keep you centered as well. Yes. Yeah. And I also put it in a binder. You can turn the pages easily. Uh, and also you're not going to drop them and, and find that you haven't numbered the pages them. and they all fall. <laughs> that's right. That's right. My preaching professor at seminary, he had the worst presentation skills of anybody I ever knew. Dropping pages brings him to mind. He was preaching in the seminary chapel one night and he dropped all his notes. Oh. His hands were shaking, but he picked them up. But it didn't matter because what he said and the authenticity with which he said it was such that he only wanted to root for him more because he wasn't trying to be anybody other than who he is. So, Peter, when you're standing there and you feel you have the audience in the palm of your hand uh, as a speaker, I don't mean in a manipulative way, no. but what comedians would say, I have the room. Yeah. It's a lovely feeling when you have the room. Yeah. But it's also palpable when you lose them. Yes. Now, you know, you're very experienced and it probably doesn't happen very often, but there are times for maybe other reasons mm -hmm. why, or external reasons why suddenly you think, 
kind of lost them. Yeah. What, what does that feel like and how do you know you've lost them? Yeah, yeah, and that's a really good question. It, it's because it's so intangible, but you know, you know fast. And yeah, I've seen actors on stage lose a whole theater. I've seen clergy lose a whole congregation. And it's happened to me, of yeah. course. It's an energy thing. I almost think of it as a vibration. I kind of get a vibration in yeah. the room. Yeah, but there's a balance between having the calmness and energy. Because yeah. people often mistake calmness for having no energy. Oh no, it's quite the opposite. Well, I think it's a lot about breathing. And I think uh, especially a congregation or an audience of people. I mean, human beings, and I think it's one of the things the pandemic has just underlined, we're social animals. Mm. And when we are congregated together in a colony, we long for human connection. We're, we're more like dogs, pack animals. We mm. need to be together. And from a physiological point of view, people actually start breathing together. So a disparate group of people become an organism, as it were. That's when they are as one. And maybe when they stop breathing together, you suddenly think, I've lost them now. Well, sometimes it's an external thing that happens. A uh, siren goes down the street. Yeah. Someone has a coughing yeah. fit. Yeah. So there's that kind of distraction thing. Uh, the other is often, and speaking personally, and this has happened to me, and I'm sure it's happened to lots of us, your head isn't in the game. You lose focus mm -hmm. or interest in what you Or you, you get say. distracted by something. Or you maybe. get distracted, and then you can just watch the thing yeah. fall apart. And what about... If you're having to read a familiar Bible passage, yes. maybe say at Christmas time, these are stories that we've heard or parables that we've heard. Whatever faith we're in, we will have heard stories, yes, we will have heard the same stories. passages. Yeah. How do you make those familiar passages sound fresh? Yeah. It's a challenge, isn't oh, it? Oh, it's a huge challenge because you think, okay, I can go on automatic, right? The coaching that I've given around this to people who read is number one, to practice. And probably to practice out loud especially when it's a familiar story. Yes. And to find one idea within that story, as familiar as it might be, that's new for you. Because if it's new for you, others may have got it, you know, a thousand times, but, oh, you know, I never noticed that the myrrh, for example, let's, because we're in sort of the Christmas season here when we're recording this, you know, the wise men brought gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And I never noticed that at Jesus' resurrection, the women bring myrrh to ah. the tomb. Ah, so in the story of the Magi, we're actually getting some very artful foreshadowing of what's going to happen. So let's say that's the first time you've discovered that. And so then when you read it and the gifts of the Magi were gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Yeah. The audience don't necessarily know why, but it gives a fresh intention. Yes. What actors would do, for example, if you're doing a show maybe eight times a week, they say to themselves, tonight, I'm going to try to be as clear in my articulation. Or they'll say, tonight, I'm really going to listen to what people say to me. Yes. Or tonight, I'm going to try and find as much humour as possible. Yes. Now, it's not going to actually change the performance that much, right. but, but it does keep it fresh. And it's the intention, as you've said before. Mm. It's the intention of what we do. Yeah, one of my actor friends will comment on a particular actor's performance. Let's say he's seen you on stage. Robin listens well on stage. You're not saying anything, yeah. but your intention on stage to listen, he notices that. That kind of stillness. 
Yeah. And I find that with presenters as well, with people who make presentations, preachers, public speakers of a variety of types. If there is a kind of internal stillness within them, I feel more relaxed. Yes. Mark Rylance, the actor Mark yes. Rylance, unbelievably still. Yeah. One of the best British actors around at the moment. And I remember Tom Hanks saying, he did a film with him, yeah. Bridge of Spies, it was called. That's it. And Tom Hanks, I saw him on a chat show, and he said, you don't want to be in a two-shot with Mark Rylance. He said, even though I'm Tom Hanks, and I know that people normally look at me because I'm the star and the way it's shot, but if I'm in a two-shot with Mark Rylance, I know nobody's looking at me. And he said, it's the first time in my career. And I slightly panicked. I suddenly went back to being a young actor thinking, how do I pull focus? Because this guy's really good. And the reason he was good is he is so still. And this comes back to this sense of calmness and breathing low. Combined with an intention of energy is what does it. It's quite hard to pull off. But I think it comes back to what you said at the beginning, which is you get to the point where you're comfortable with who you are. Yeah. And that's something that happens as we get older. You seem to have had it when you were seven years old, from yeah. what you're saying. When, when is that age that people start to go, do you know what, I think I know who I am now. Yeah. Maybe some people never get there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I think it's different for everybody. For me, part of it also had to do with publicly coming out as a gay guy in a world now, thank God, at least in Canada, and I think in many parts of the world, although still tragically not some, being same-sex attracted is no longer a shameful thing. No. Let's tell one story. I was elected at our General Synod, which is the national gathering of the Anglican Church of Canada, to be the prolocutor, which is the the highest elected position that you can get if you're not a bishop. And I'd written an article in a book where I came out publicly, and I was elected, and that was all fine. The next day, it was we were in Ontario, the next day the Vancouver Sun came out the paper here, and it was even through a federal election, and the headline was Vancouver gay priest elected prolocutor with a huge picture of me above the fold. And one of my parishioners picked up the paper and said to her husband, oh, Peter's in it, said, well, what has he done now? And said, well, he was elected, and they're saying he's gay. Said, well, everybody's known that. But at the time, it was a bit of a crisis. And I was 50. That's right. what prompted it. Because yes. I think 50 is about the age. Right. I'm sure you know about the kind of four levels of learning. You begin as unconsciously incompetent to become consciously incompetent. In other words, you know what you can't do to become yeah. conscious, consciously competent and then unconsciously competent. Yeah. It's kind of like driving, you know, when you start, you're unconsciously incompetent, and then you become quite consciously incompetent. And finally, when you know how to drive, you're not even thinking about shifting gears. And in a similar way, I think, confidence around public speaking, around communicating, we go through all these trials and we get it wrong, and then finally we become sort of unconsciously competent and don't even have to think about it. And Peter, one last question. I normally ask this question, but it's going to be slightly different in your case. I normally say, what advice would you give to your seven-year-old self? Well, I think your seven-year-old self would say, just go out there and sing. But what advice would you give to a friend or a parishioner in your previous role? I just feel nervous. I don't like people looking at me. I know I have something interesting to say. I've got a reasonable job and I kind of know what I'm doing. But I get up there and it all just falls apart. What can I do? Yeah. Well, number one, congratulations, because a little bit of anxiety is not a bad thing. Mm. If I don't have a little bit of anxiety before I get up, I actually get quite worried. Yeah. 
And adrenaline is our friend. It gives us a boost of energy. So an appropriate amount of energy. Appropriate amount of energy. So uh, congratulations. Number two, get up to the podium. Or if you're flying without a net, just stand. And before you say anything, just take a deep breath and look and see how many eyes you can connect with. Because the truth is that 90% of the time, the audience is there. They want you to do a good job. They don't want to waste their time. They want to learn something. They're actually with you. Yeah. And if you can get that and then take a deep breath and say, let me tell you a story, you're on your way. Peter, thank you so much. It's been wonderful having you on. It's been a privilege. Thanks, Robin. Great to see you. Thank Cheers. You. For more information on my online public speaking masterclass, visit robinkermode.com. 